unless our nation stands balanced on the three legs of freedom, virtue and faith, our nation cannot long stand. We now live in a culture which is repeatedly wounded by the loud voices of self-loathing and self-harm, despising the enemies of its self-destruction, families and faith. For the sake of handing on to our children's children the legacy we've been given, the treasure of freedom and the skills of self-government, we must rediscover the imperative mission of transmitting our culture through intentional parenting and unapologetic preaching. May all that you stand for and that we stand for be preserved under the providence of God for the happiness of mankind. The trouble is caused by unthinking people who carelessly throw away ageless ideals as if they were old and outworn machinery. But it is the values of individual liberty, equality before the law and the supremacy of people over the state to which we can always with confidence return as a powerful and uniting force. Australia is not a secular country, it is a free country. thought it would be good to introduce my friend Dave Pellow with a couple of thoughts. And that is that there is a prophetic tradition within the church. And that is absolutely essential. The first role of the prophet was to speak for God. He had to be bold, blunt and confrontational. Come on. <laughs> Men like Nathan, Elijah and John the Baptist did just that. They confronted theft, <clears throat> adultery and murder. Those three offences all found in the Ten Commandments. But John the Baptist is not the modern church's poster child. We prefer modernity, popularity and inoffensiveness. But those attributes impress no one, especially unbelievers. This is what has brought us to where we are today. Yeah. It hasn't been good, and it isn't something to be proud of. Uh, we in the church will have to change, and I hope we can change quickly. It would be better if some of us finished our life in a ditch with a bullet in our head then be unfaithful to the God of heaven. Mm. Let's be frank. Sometimes that happens to good men and good women around the world. Jesus warned us against hoping that we would be loved by the world. He said, if they hate you, it's because they hated me. Dave Pellow is an encourager, a promoter, perhaps even a provocateur. I trust we can make room in our hearts for his encouragements today in the prophetic tradition. Mm -hmm. 
So our plan will be today is that Dave will take about 30 minutes to speak and afterwards he will be happy to take questions from the floor. So without any further ado, Mr Dave Pellow, come and share. Thank you very much and um, congratulations to Family Voice. What an auspicious occasion to be invited to be your guest speaker. 50 years of legacy, of uh, tilling the ground, breaking up rocks and uh, preparing hearts for the, the gospel of Jesus Christ in this nation. So congratulations to everybody who's been involved in, in this great legacy, uh, which, which we need to build on. Climate alarmism is a hoax. Yes, the climate is changing. And that is nothing new. Just ask Noah. <laughs> God used to water the earth not by rain, but by dew. The experts in Noah's day mocked him when he described coming flooding rains. And then the climate changed. This globe has experienced many ice ages and warming periods when agricultural industries were dramatically impacted or benefited as they are now. Just ask the ancient Aborigines in Tasmania who didn't swim there. Acclaimed historian Geoffrey Blaney claims they walked or at least migrated over several generations from Victoria to Tasmania thousands of years ago. Perhaps they somehow knew how bad life under dictator Daniel Andrews was going to be for their descendants. <clears throat> the Bass Strait is now 50 to 70 metres underwater because changing sea levels is as inevitable as it is historical over very long periods of time. <coughs> Alarmism serves agendas of accumulating power and wealth for governments and elitists. But that climate change, half a degree or a centimetre per century, is not climate change we should be alarmed about or resisting with every resource available. As early Stone Age Aborigines proved, humans are amazingly able to adapt to changing weather patterns and environments, and more so now with advances in technology and industry. What we should be alarmed about, the change we should demand, action now, to slow and arrest, if not reverse, for the sake of the lives of our children and their children is the cultural climate change. Rabbi Sachs said in 2017, we are going through one of the most profound revolutions in all of human history. And I sum it up with a single phrase, cultural climate change. Just as literal climate change breaks down old patterns and radically changes weather conditions, this new cultural climate change is causing a series of storms in the West that will upend conventional notions of faith and the role religion plays in society. I've been asked to expound on the decades of work the Family Voice Ministry has contributed so much to since 1973, and it's important work, fighting for a moral nation. But why should we care enough to intervene in and influence the course of our nation? Why should morality of all things be the business of the public square 
and debated policy? Why is there any fight at all if the dividends of morality are better than the alternatives? And how can we take action now to prevent the civilizationally catastrophic consequences of cultural climate change? Well, the two culture-protecting institutions I see Family Voice advocating on behalf of, perhaps more than any other fights worth fighting, are family, literally in the name, and the only true religion, the Christian faith. Parents and pulpits are the key to saving Australia. Families and faith. The four levels of government ordained by (laughs) Almighty God are self-government, father and mother in a family, church government and civil authorities. It is the God-given role of parents to discipline, to train their children in self-government for the maximum enjoyment of their freedom and service to others. God repeatedly observed what he created in Eden was good and pleasant. The life we were designed to experience was meant to be inherently good and pleasant. It is the God-given role of the pulpit, the leaders in churches, to equip and build up the believers for the work of the ministry, to unite us in faith and in being conformed to the character of Christ. When the ascension gifts listed in Ephesians chapter 4 are doing their job well, believers will no longer be immature in their thinking or go with the flow of every novel philosophy, such as can be seen being embraced in theologically liberal congregations. When parents and pulpits are exercising their authority confidently and well, the best possible citizens are being produced and collectively create the best possible cities and nations. Excellence in individual self-government, also known as virtue or morality, is created and sustained by excellent families and churches, parents and pulpits, in turn minimising the need for massive civil government because most people are voluntarily in fear of God, governing themselves skillfully and beautifully. Governments then must not usurp the rights and authorities or liberties of parents or religion but for the sake of the best society capable of maximal flourishing, safety and prosperity, they must fiercely protect and promote parents and pulpits, families and Christian faith. I do not mean governments should dictate the values or constrain the consciences of families or churches. Governments must not legislate against parents or pulpits disagreeing with government in what they teach those they have been charged by Almighty God to lead. If we want a moral nation, then we must be champions of robust parental rights and religious liberties. But why would a moral nation be something to aspire to and protect? It's simply the truth that not all people are capable of self-government. Some need more frequent interventions from authority figures like parents, pastors, police and politicians. It's likewise true that not all groups of people, societies and cultures are capable of flourishing if left alone to self-government. 
Democracy doesn't suit all societies. Freedom doesn't suit all societies. When dictators and kings rule with an iron fist, the lack of freedom doesn't always result in tyranny. It depends on the rules. When parliaments are elected by an immoral majority, the wide distribution of power doesn't always result in freedom just because it's an exercise in freedom. It depends on the popular policies. Take, for example, a most recent example, the authoritarian command and control in Western societies. Craven statists were in the majority. These cowards and clowns preferred empty promises of safety from a virus over natural freedoms to choose if and when to go to work, school and church. Not all societies are ready for the responsibility of self-government or mature enough to use freedom skillfully and beautifully. Democracy is not even the default condition of societies throughout history. Most democracies have ended in civilizational collapse, including the Greeks and Romans. Observe how African and Middle Eastern nations have collapsed under the weight of freedom, turning to corruption when arrogant Western attempts to transplant society, democracy into societies not ready for it have failed when the colonists have withdrawn and left those nations perhaps worse than before they helped. On September 18, 1787, Mrs. Elizabeth Powell of Philida was waiting to hear how the four-month-long American Constitutional Convention had finally agreed America was going to be governed for centuries to come. Nothing was a given. And she asked Benjamin Franklin as he came out on the last day, well, doctor, what have we got? A republic or a monarchy? Franklin's now famous reply was, a republic, ma'am, if you can keep it. What he meant is that freedom can end very badly if not exercised very carefully. And indeed, we see the American experiment devolving into something the founders never would have imagined, such as the Supreme Court's vain imaginations that rights to kill babies and to profane marriage were somehow constitutionally guaranteed. The soaring death tolls from gang violence in some cities is the result of too many fatherless, godless individuals yeah. ill-equipped in the skills of self-government. Speaking of the rise of mob law as a threat to the perpetuation of America's political institutions, a very young Abraham Lincoln once explained that America might repel all kinds of foreign attacks, but the attack it could never defend from was the self-harm they could inflict on themselves through lack of virtue to sustain freedom. He said, if destruction be our lot, we must ourselves be its author and finisher. As a nation of free men, we must live through all time or die by suicide. The founding fathers were all well aware that the predominantly religious citizens of the new world were probably collectively ready for true self-government as a nation for the first time of any people in many centuries, if not all time. Dr. Benjamin Franklin also said, 
Only a virtuous people are capable of freedom. The French political philosopher, Alexis de Tocqueville, who came to America from the godless revolution of his home country, observed, nothing is more wonderful than the art of being free, but nothing is harder to learn than how to use freedom. Practically speaking, a corrupt dictator can be converted or killed, which is basically America's preferred foreign policy for the last hundred years or so. But to save a free nation self-governed by voters from their own corruption requires the reformation of the nation's culture and deliberate development of virtuous citizens. The challenge of freedom is the skill of its use has to be transmitted in every generation or it dies. There is nothing as effective as parents and pulpits in transmitting the skills of freedom, which are virtue and faith. Obtaining freedom is a challenge for a short time, like a revolution. Ordering freedom is a challenge for some months or years, like constitutional conventions have taken. But sustaining freedom is a challenge for all time, for successive generations. It never ends unless it's forgotten. And that is why we must never relax the fight for a moral nation. Freedom without morality or self-government is chaos or anarchy. Like a bridled horse or a skilled musician, discipline is where the power of true freedom is really discovered and maximised. Now, I play trumpet, but not very well. I have freedom with a trumpet in my hands. Nobody's stopping me doing anything I want but I don't really know what I'm doing with the freedom in my hands. Without thousands of hours in practice, in scales, and study of the theories and principles of music, what I produce is chaotic and unenjoyable by anyone, including me. But for Louis Armstrong, Wynton Marsalis, and Phil Driscoll, their liberty and freedom with a trumpet is an exercise in such transcendent beauty that the world celebrates their ability to move about seemingly effortlessly, improvising and innovating in and out of the rules of harmony, dissonance and rhythm. So it is with freedom. The sciences and understandings of freedom make it a remarkable thing of beauty to serve the soaring heights of human possibility, charity and innovation. But in the hands of an untrained, undevoted voter or politician, abuses of freedom can be as ugly and painful to experience as a toddler mashing at a piano with chubby clenched fists. There's nothing uplifting about that racket before the child is taught how to play properly. Which is more loving, to give a child an extravagantly crafted instrument and insist they spend decades studying the fundamentals and freeing them to create soul-inspiring beauty or to leave them unattended, neglecting all lessons and entirely undisciplined and telling them they're free to make music. Instruments weren't made to collect dust or throw around carelessly or inflict upon everyone else painfully. Freedom, like an instrument for making music, has a purpose it must serve, played by a skillful owner. 
A broken and bridled horse is freer than a brumby. The wild horse roaming wild is in poorer condition through a shorter life than a horse which is corralled, groomed, shod, well-fed, nutrient supplements, watered, exercised, trained, saddled and ridden under the guidance of the vision of the stockman who empowers that single horse to round up a hundred wild brumbies. The romantic notions of a wild brumby roaming the snowy mountains may be poetic, but the reality is the freedom of the horse bridled with purpose is a far more powerful life. So it is with freedom and virtue, with the purpose, vision and disciplines of virtue, the lived reality of absolute freedom, sorry, without virtue, the lived reality of absolute freedom is destructive, unhealthy and destitute of any redeeming beauty or power. But virtue requires faith. Virtue itself is not an unmoored, free-floating quality. The evils of subjective or situational ethics mean tyrants can justify the opposite of freedom, authoritarianism, and call it therapeutic, good for you and us all. Virtue without faith in God is a communist social credit score, a mass medication mandate, and the forced redistribution of earned wealth to those not bothered to be productive members of a community. Virtue must be anchored in a fixed set of morals, values and principles such as the Christian faith. If you wonder, like me, how our political leaders so wantonly violated common law and constitutional freedoms during the policy pandemic of 2020 to 2022, consider the words of the second president of the United States, just 11 years after the Constitutional Convention. In a letter he wrote to the officers of the Massachusetts militia in 1798, he said, and I quote, we have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. Avarice, ambition, revenge or gallantry would break the strongest cords of our constitution as a whale goes through a net. Our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. US President John Adams. We need to fight for a moral nation because freedom combined with a lack of moral restraint equals anarchy, chaos. It liberates immoral people to hurt and exploit vulnerable people. Virtue uninformed by faith becomes virtue signaling, an exercise in looking good as opposed to doing good, even when only God is watching. So why should a moral nation be something of great value to its voters and residents? Why should preachers concern themselves with more than just their little flock, but their whole city and the morals of millions in their nation? I've already quoted Alexis de Tocqueville, a French political philosopher. The French government sent him to America to study the American prison system, but he ended up taking nine months to study the whole society, including politics, economics and religion. An apt summation of his two-volume work, Democracy in America, was quoted by Dwight D. Eisenhower. Quote, I sought for the greatness and genius of America in her commodious harbours and her ample rivers 
and it was not there. In her fertile fields and boundless forests, and it was not there. In her rich mines and her vast world commerce, and it was not there. In her democratic congress and her matchless constitution, and it was not there. Not until I went into the churches of America and heard her pulpits flame with righteousness did I understand the secret of her genius and power. America is great because she is good. And if America ever ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. End quote. Church and family are the essential institutions for transmitting a culture of objective goodness to successive generations of a nation. And the destruction of that transmission is the goal of the enemies of nations. Beware the Trojan horse of mass schooling, the preferred vehicle for governments and anti-Christian agendas to usurp the God-given institutions for developing citizens of good Christian character. Attacks on religious liberty and parental rights are only and all about the subversive political ambitions of the anti-freedom socialist revolution. Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher said, socialists don't like ordinary people choosing, for they may not choose socialism. <laughs> Compare that to the generous freedom in God, where he invites us to freely choose to obey his laws and commands. He set the man and woman in the garden, desperately wanting them to choose obedience and trust in him and for them to avoid the self-destructive power of abusing the freedom he gave them to make their own choice. Socialists, on the other hand, claim to believe in some kind of utopia and reject the corrupting risks of absolute power in the hands of a few. They don't believe in it. But yet they regulate the life out of societies in the ambition of preventing ordinary people from even having the choice of not choosing their values or vision for society. The last thing a radical socialist wants is ordinary people being trained by pulpits or parents yeah. as the beneficiaries and guardians of freedom because socialism and freedom are entirely incompatible. And so the person trained in the skillful use of freedom will entirely reject socialism. So parents and pulpits, according to the socialists, must be regulated and restricted until there is no risk to their agendas of critically deconstructing every last tradition, beauty and institution given by God and benefited generations gone. In the 1930s, Wilhelm Reich invented the term which became popular in the 60s, sexual revolution. He believed political revolution could only be achieved through overthrowing sexual repression, that is, marriage, monogamy and chastity. He quite openly wrote in his published books, quote, We have two enemies, the Christian church and parents. We will sideline parents with sex education of their young children, end quote. People began to sneer at virtue in the 1960s. The slow, steady decline of morality is how societies crumble and collapse, squandering freedom with the chubby fists of decadence. Pulpits lulled into a false sense of security and enjoyment of historically enormous liberty mostly failed to see the cultural climate change threat coming 
or take action against it. Christians were told that political influence was a manifestation of carnal vanity and lust for power and not a faithful stewardship of political freedom. But freedom is not possible without virtue or faith. And the progressive erosion of morality since the 60s and the increasing persecution of politically confident Christianity has been an attack not just on the personal freedom of Christians, but of the nation. Agnostic Frenchman Alexis de Tocqueville again said, liberty cannot be established without morality. It cannot be established and it cannot be ordered and it cannot be protected and perpetuated without both virtue and faith. And that is why libertarian philosophies are limited in their ability to well apply the good instincts for small government. We need a spiritual and cultural reformation. Teshuva is the central theme of the time between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, collectively known as the 10 days of Teshuva. Typically, Teshuva is translated from the Hebrew as repentance, but it literally means return, as if turning back to something you've strayed from or looked away from. The best known ritual of Rosh Hashanah is the blowing of the shofar. While the blowing of the shofar is a biblical statute, it is also a symbolic wake-up call stirring the people to mend their ways and repent. The shofar blasts call out, sleepers, wake up from your slumber, examine your ways and repent and remember your creator. This is what we are fighting for when we say we are fighting for a moral nation. We are sounding the shofar, sounding the alarm and the wake up call to our fellow countrymen to not just turn away from the wickedness of slavery, sexual promiscuity, undefining gender, undefining marriage, and the child sacrifice industry, or the wickedness of calling it therapy to kill sick and old people. There's a new wickedness almost every day, it seems, and the human imagination seems barely troubled in the campaign to devise new wickedness. But it's not just turning away from wickedness that we are calling for. It's the turning of hearts back to Almighty God, the home from which we've strayed as a nation. Enshrined in the preamble to our constitution, acknowledged in daily prayers opening our parliaments, but forgotten mere moments later. Church and family are under unprecedented attack in Australia, both from invading enemies who feel threatened by the power and beauty of skilled freedom submitted to God, as well as from within by our own self-destruction. We must again encourage ourselves and each other to be champions of marriage and of the culturally critical importance of full-time mothers. We cannot expect the perpetuation of our culture if we outsource raising our children to governments and government-funded strangers. We must be practitioners of the gratitude and honour due to devoted sacrificial fathers rather than deriding and emasculating men. We must be advocates of traditional gender roles, defenders of parental rights in education and committed ourselves to intentionally discipling our children and grandchildren to fear and know almighty God not just so they'll enjoy eternal life and salvation from condemnation, but so that they can be skilled in the use of freedom and citizens capable of self-government. 
we must organise and advocate for the unified message to society and political candidates that biological family is a sacred authority deliberately separated from government by Almighty God. And the nation is best served by government staying out of family authority. As Moses spoke to Israel the night of Israel's deliverance from slavery in Egypt, he never once mentioned freedom. He didn't mention the promised land, but he mentioned children three times. Because the story you tell to your children is the key to your identity and cultural continuity. We are failing to transmit our most important ideas, the value of Western civilization, the authority and unimpeachable truth of Christianity. President Ronald Reagan said, freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it on to our children in the bloodstream. It must be fought for, protected, and handed on for them to do the same, or one day, we will spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it was once like in the United States where men were free. We must redouble the skills and focus of our pulpits to train our nation. Matthew 28, 19, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. God's word is loud and relevant to the nations and to the important public issues being debated. He is not the last to consider after the media and lobbyists have consumed all our attention, but the first. For the quality of our democracy, governments of all stripes should fear the rebuke of the pulpit more than they fear bad press. I cannot say it any better than Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who in 1967 preached, the church must be reminded that it is not the master or the servant of the state, but rather the conscience of the state. It must be the guide and the critic of the state and never its tool. If the church does not recapture its prophetic zeal, it will become an irrelevant social club without moral or spiritual authority. If the church does not participate actively in the struggle for peace and justice, it will forfeit the loyalty of millions and cause men everywhere to say it has atrophied its will. But if the church will free itself from the shackles of a deadening status quo and recovering its great historic mission will speak and act fearlessly and insistently in terms of justice and peace, it will enkindle the imagination of mankind and fire the souls of men, imbuing them with a glowing and ardent love for truth, justice and peace. Men far and near will know the church as a great fellowship of love that provides light and bread for lonely travellers at midnight. Yeah. End quote. Legislators must hear from every freedom and nation-loving citizen the insistence that religious liberty for Christian churches, Christian schools, other Christian organisations, Christian businesses, and indeed every Christian conscience must be protected far more seriously and for more consequential reasons than the freedom of press. 
In summary, we need cultural climate action now. If we fail to address the human behaviour caused changes to our cultural climate, we will soon come to a catastrophic point of no return. And that is not alarmism. That is the history of great civilizations simply repeating. Os Guinness describes the golden triangle of democracy as this. There can be no faith without freedom. There can be no freedom without virtue. And there can be no virtue without faith. Unless our nation stands balanced on the three legs of freedom, virtue and faith, our nation cannot long stand. We now live in a culture which is repeatedly wounded by the loud voices of self-loathing and self-harm, despising the enemies of its self-destruction, families and faith. For the sake of handing on to our children's children the legacy we've been given, the treasure of freedom and the skills of self-government, we must rediscover the imperative mission of transmitting our culture through intentional parenting and unapologetic preaching. God save the King. God bless Australia. special kind of courage, not the kind needed in battle, but a kind which makes us stand up for everything that we know is right, everything that is true and honest. We need the kind of courage that can withstand the subtle corruption of the cynics, so that we can show the world that we are not afraid of the future.